This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Steve Dennis joins us again, Senate reporter, looking after all things Congress for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from Maryland. And a lot of politics happening uh, down there on Capitol Hill today. Steve, bring us up to date. Yeah, so we're kind of stuck in a stalemate right now over how to replenish this small business fund, the Paycheck Protection Program, PPP. Uh, You know, Mnuchin wants an extra quarter of a trillion dollars, ASAP. And uh, the Democrats basically said, yeah, but we want to make some changes and we want to add more money for hospitals in the states. And so here we are at an impasse. McConnell went to the floor this morning, tried to just do a clean $250 billion increase for this $350 billion program. The Democrats objected, added their own proposals. McConnell objected. So now we're sort of in this Usual state of Washington of attacking each other um, for blocking things, and uh, the next, you know, looks like this is probably going to continue for several days over Easter, and yeah. you know, maybe next week they they start negotiating something uh, uh, more serious. So politics aside, Steve, so who's right? I mean. Are the Democrats right to include more aid for state and local governments? I've heard from Governor Cuomo and others about the assistance states are going to need. Or, you know, are the Republicans right, you know, saying we've got to get, you know, money to individual workers or small businesses? Who's right about this in terms of, you know, what needs to be done first and foremost? Well, the point the Republicans are making is that the, the small business program is already up and running and it's going to run out of money. You know, this this program is supposed to last until June 30th, last, the last time these loans can go out. But just in, since they opened the program on Friday, <laughs> last Friday, approximately $100 billion has already been allocated. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to get to $350 billion by, like, Monday or Tuesday. So there is a little bit of leeway here. And the Democrats are saying, uh, look, this program has uh, we like it, but it's got some problems. There are lots of small businesses uh, that are having a hard time getting their bank or any bank to take their application, particularly if they're a smaller small business who does who don't already have sort of a relationship with that bank. And so they want to see the the program expanded, make the application requirements a little bit uh, smoother and more streamlined and say, hey, let's sit down and talk about this. And uh, McConnell's like, look, let's just increase the money now. We can we can deal with some of this stuff later. But, you know, that's not how uh, Congress tends to work. It's, it's, it's very hard for a divided Congress, two parties, in a situation where every single senator and every single House member needs to give consent to do anything in this age of coronavirus, where they're not in session, mm. to, to agree on a quarter trillion dollars in, you know, overnight. So this is not unusual that it's going to take sort of several rounds of partisan attacks on each other and saying, hey, you aren't helping out the workers, or right. you're focused too much on the bigger businesses, and that sort of thing. So, you know, something's going to get done, 
It's just a question of when, whether it's going to be early next week, late next week, or we're going to wait until they come back. They're scheduled to come back the week of April 20th. It's possible they won't even come back that week because people are worried about the virus. Yeah, it's interesting, too. I mean, this is coming. We're having this conversation as a couple uh, redheads are crossing the Bloomberg about lockdowns and not in the United States. Spanish Parliament backing and extending locked backing, extending the lockdown, excuse me, to April 25th. And at the same time, the South African president ex- extending the nationwide lockdown by two weeks. So governments are also wrestling with this notion of what do we do in the meantime? How long are we essentially going to need to be assisting these companies and and the economies, uh, the economy of the country? And Steve Dennis, I do also wonder, is Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, he's continuing to sort of be the broker in all of this for the administration, and he and Pelosi did get this done last time. Yeah, I think... um the, the one relationship in town that seems to be working right now is uh, Stephen Mnuchin with uh, Chuck Schumer, the, the Senate Democratic leader, and uh, Pelosi. Yeah. Uh, that, that trio seems to be able to get things done lately. So, uh, you know, if Mnuchin's on the phone with those two and, and actually negotiating instead of sort of saying, here's our request, take it or leave it, that's when you know things are getting closer to an actual deal. Um, and, you know, while there has been some good news on the virus lately with the curve starting to flatten and social distancing is helping, I mean, that's sort of like a, another message to people listening to this, is it's actually helping when you uh, socially distance yourself. Yeah. Yep. Uh, we're starting to see some evidence of that. The, the the economic impact is going to last a lot longer. We're already up to 17 million, and and there's lots of reports, including on on uh, Bloomberg reporting, that lots of people still can't uh, even file in a lot of these states. Their systems are so outdated and antiquated. The real number is probably higher. And you know, all these programs they just passed with a 2.3 trillion dollar bill, 2.2 trillion dollars. They're probably all going to be a lot more expensive by the time they're all said and done in the next right. couple of months. All right, Steve Dennis, thank you so much. Senate reporter at Bloomberg News joining us on the phone from Maryland. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. We've got Dr. Chris Byer with us. He's professor of epidemiology. 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 Thank you very much. And public health and human rights at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. And of course, we know the Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Dr. Byer, nice to have you here with us. I just want to go, we want to get into, because you are specifically looking at prison populations, but I do want to ask you about one of the headlines that we got from Dr. Fauci today, um, the kind of go-to person along with you folks at Johns Hopkins, really mm-hmm. forget, understanding what's going on with the virus. But he's saying, you know, he really slashed those death projections, saying that maybe about 60,000 people may now die, almost half as many that the White House had talked about about a week ago based on models and projections. How should we, as those of us who are still at home, still social distancing, social distancing, how should we read headlines like that? Well, I think everybody ought to uh, really feel a sense of of pride and and of our coming together as a country, because the reason that the projections are being, uh, the numbers are being decreased 
is because of the really remarkable success of social distancing, of people taking it seriously, staying at home. Uh, and I think also we have to say of particularly the leadership of governors and uh, a number of states who uh, move quickly uh, and impose social distancing early. Um, we're still, of course, very concerned. Uh, and, uh, you know, even the downgraded numbers are enormous numbers of loss of life yeah. uh, for this country and the world. Uh, but really, this is about the, the um, tremendous uh, response to social distancing uh, on the part of the American people. And that gives us a, a, a nice segue right into, you know, where you are spending a lot of your time, Dr. Byer, and that is the fact that this is a human rights uh, issue in, in many ways. And part of the reason that the social distancing works is people are essentially able to socially distance themselves. You know, Carol and I and you and, and many other people who are fortunate to be able to work from home or, you know, sort of live our lives in a certain way. That's one thing. But this virus is exposing just dramatic uh, gaps and inequalities. And, and certainly nowhere is that more true than, than in the nation's prisons. Tell us about what you're finding. Well, first of all, keep in mind that no country incarcerates more of its citizens uh, than the United States. So yeah. this is a particular vulnerability for our country. It's about 2.3 million people currently in jails and prisons. And just to understand that, that's close to a quarter. It's about 24 percent of all people in the world in prisons and jails. So we're an outlier. We also have between 36 and 40,000 people in immigration detention on any given day. It's a much smaller number, but the conditions there are also very worrisome. Uh, so, of course, the things that we've all been asked to do to socially distance, to keep six feet apart, to practice good hygiene and the hand washing, all of those elements are virtually impossible for people in crowded detention facilities. And by people in those facilities, I don't just mean the detainees. I also mean the staff, mm -hmm. guards, people who are in and out of those facilities. That puts everybody at risk. And it also, because most of these facilities have three eight-hour shifts a day, means that people are constantly in and out of these facilities, uh, all the workers and staff, and exposing their families. Uh, so this is this is a, a very real concern, and we had been concerned about this for a while because I've done work in the past on other prison-related outbreaks of other infectious diseases like tuberculosis, MDR-TB, MRSA, methicillin-resistant staph aureus, hep C, all of which have been uh, increased in transmission and risk in, in prisons. Um, but Unfortunately, uh, what we've seen is that the responses have been too slow uh, and too late, and now we already have outbreaks underway in prisons and jails. The most prominent one is Rikers Island in New York, of course, a very large outbreak, but there's one underway in Cook County in Chicago. There's a number uh, underway in immigration detention facilities in New Jersey. Those hold many people arrested in New York, uh, and, uh, and we are really very concerned. Uh, about those issues. Um, it's very clear that uh, in the first outbreaks, uh, most of the people affected have been staff. This was true in Wuhan and right. it was true in Rikers. Uh, but that changes over time. There's some other things we have to recognize as well. I'm sure both of you have seen that there's emerging evidence about 
how much more uh, COVID-19 disease and death there appears to be in African-Americans. Yes. And- Dr. Chris Byrer, who's been kind enough to and patient enough to sit with us, a professor of epidemiology and public health and human rights at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Uh, so nice of you to stay with us. Dr. Byrer, we were just going to start talking with you about how disproportionately minorities have been impacted by this virus um, doesn't come as a surprise to me because I feel like often minorities, when it comes to some kinds of health impact, they, they often get hit hardest, uh, get hit the hardest. Um, what are your thoughts about that? How do we make a difference on the other side of this? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I think it, it isn't a surprise, unfortunately, uh, that we're seeing this. I think we are all surprised by the magnitude of the difference doesn't appear to be a modest difference. It appears to be a significantly higher rates of both uh, severe disease and death from COVID-19, particularly among African-Americans, but also uh, Latinos. And this is emerging as an issue uh, for some Native American groups, particularly the Navajo. So we're, we're very concerned. I think there's several factors we have to pay attention to. So one of the very first is um, a report actually out of a jobs position, uh, um, which Charles Blow in the Times noted, which is that one in five African-Americans has a job for which you can telecommute and work from home. So four Mm -hmm. out of five are uh, lower wage workers out there on the front line. So their occupational situation in this country is is an important exposure. It's only one in six Latinos who can stay at home. The second is, of course, that that means many of these are workers who also are using public transportation, which is emerging, of course, as a risk. Then we have the issue of pre-existing conditions. So African-Americans in particular, we've long known, have higher rates of some of the diseases that predispose you to do badly with COVID if you do get exposed. And those include things like hypertension, diabetes, um, uh, a pre-existing history of cancer, uh, and also heart disease, which are all elevated in African-Americans. I think the other reality is something that's more on us as a society, which is, of course, that they have had uh, lower access to health care and lower uh, rates of health insurance. And if you look uh, across particularly the swath of the southeast, which has the largest African-American populations, uh, we have a lot of red state governors who did not want to extend the Affordable Care Act with Medicaid. Uh, and did not extend the health insurance franchise. Right now, as you may know, the administration did not open another round of ACA uh, signups. Uh, and, uh, and so in the midst of this crisis, we're still limiting people's access to health insurance. Uh, and that disproportionately affects low-income people. And low-income people in the U.S. is always confounded by race and ethnicity. Uh, so I think all of those factors, the, the, their employment and use of public transportation, the pre-existing conditions, the lower access to health care, the disproportionate lack of access to the Affordable Care Act in the South and Southeast, all these factors are coming together, unfortunately, right. in what, what we call a syndemic. It's, it's an <laughs> yeah. interaction of multiple factors. 
Well, let's hope that folks take notice uh, and there is something that we address on the other side of this because mm-hmm. we certainly are having the conversation, but it would be great to see some action as well on the other side. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for your time, uh, Dr. Byer, and we really appreciate you uh, awaiting us. We took that press conference. Dr. Chris Byer, he's professor of epidemiology and public health and human rights at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and, of course, the Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. We do want to get to the cover story of the magazine about how everyone is talking about it more notably seems to be using Zoom. Let's get right to it. It is, as we mentioned, the cover story. Drake Bennett is Projects and Investigations reporter on the phone in New York, along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. He's on the phone in Brooklyn. So, Joel, uh, this is the story. I'm so glad you guys are doing. It's a story, and it's the company everybody's talking about. Yeah, this is one that uh, the moment that we all, uh, you know, went on lock, like, wait a second, have you, have you guys seen what's been going on with Zoom's share price? And that was actually even before the lockdown. And this is a company that, you know, has obviously got a product, um, video conferencing, that is really, really important right now. And I think what the, the beauty of the story that Drake and uh, who co-authored the story with Nico Grant the thing that they realized was like, look, this business model was really great pre-coronavirus, and now it's just been consumed by everybody using this product. And that's why we, you know, I almost liken it to it's this accidental social network. Like, and <laughs> they've been growing now almost at the speed at which the pandemic has spread, and with that has come a bunch of challenges. Um, Drake, what kind of challenges stick out to you? Because the zoom la- the, the zoom lash is real. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what's um, what's a little ironic is that Eric Yuan, the founder of Zoom, was someone who was really um, kind of paranoid about making sure that he had built in enough capacity for his network to be able to absorb kind of unheard of levels of traffic. So he always had this policy that he always wanted to have like twice the server capacity of their sort of highest peak use. Um, and so in that way, they've done a pretty good job of, like, managing just the numbers. But the thing that he was not prepared for and the company was not prepared for was just um, the, the privacy and security issues that would emerge once you suddenly had the entire world using this and using it in a way that they had not designed it for. You know, people are putting their entire social lives, as you put it, uh, on this platform, which was designed for, you know, like, work video conferencing. And... I, I'm just I'm fascinated by the by the Zoom lash here, uh, Drake. I mean, New York City. It's just been it's just been brutal uh, in terms of the response. And you know, even just talking to people around the neighborhood, you know, folks are like, yeah, I want to, yeah, we we should do this. But how do they sort of get people back on side, especially sort of more regulated entities? Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, just in terms of the the, I think it's helpful to kind of think of the problems in kind of three categories. You know, yeah. one is these issues about uh, how, what kind of data Zoom gets about you and how they use it. Another category is um, security vulnerabilities that, that arise um, uh, where, you know, Zoom can be used by hackers to get malware under your computer or hackers could use it to take over your webcam and spy on you. Um, and, and the third one is, is, um, is these incidents where people are just sort of, you know, whether it's sort of bored kids who are home from school or kind of, 
white supremacist trolls are using it to kind of invade people's meetings and disrupt them in kind of horrifying ways. And so Zoom, to its credit, has been very quick to respond to almost all of the concerns that have been raised. I mean, they've, they've patched these vulnerabilities. They've changed their privacy policy. You know, they've hired all these consultants. They're getting, you know, sort of white hat hackers to come do penetration tests on their system. So they're trying very hard, and I think it's a good, very good faith effort to try to deal with this stuff. Um, and, you know, as Joel pointed out, a lot of this is just the fact that they've grown at this in this kind of time scale that no other social network has had to contend with. I mean, and to get to get those numbers out there, I, Drake, what was it? It was like 10 million users, daily users? 10 million in users in December, and then 200 million users, probably more than that now. But when they announced it's it a phenomenal. few days ago, it went from 10 to 200 million, which is just, you know, it's like this crazy orders of magnitude growth. And, and to, when you really think about that, it's like it's basically critical infrastructure. That's what we call it in the story. Like it is the thing that, you know, you're talking to your colleagues with your, your you know, my kid's classroom is using it for their morning check ins. It's and people are going on dates through this or having cocktail <laughs> mm-hmm. hours. Yeah, with one another. It's, totally. it's just amazing how it's become sort of the software of the moment. And But, you know, Drake, I thought, you know, the, another thing that that you had um, been able to uh, hit on here was that it, it, this comes from the initial idea. It was a really simple interface. And the simplicity of that right. is actually what it allowed it to meet this moment. Well, and listen, everybody needs to go to the magazine, go online to Bloomberg.com and read the entire story. And we're going to talk with the CEO and founder of Zoom a little bit later on. So our thanks to Drake and to Joel. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. One of the big stories, though, today was certainly some action by the Federal Reserve and actually hearing from Fed Chair Jay Powell uh, in a webcast hosted by the Brookings Institution. Let's start right there, a little snippet of what he had to say. At the Fed, we're doing all we can to help shepherd the economy through this difficult time. When the spread of the virus is under control, businesses will reopen and people will come back to work. There is every reason to believe that the economic rebound, when it comes, can be robust. All right, so let's break it down with our economics team. We've got them gathered remotely, as we do, as everyone does these days. Kathleen Hayes with us, Global Economics and Policy Editor from Bloomberg. On the phone from Pennsylvania, Carl Riccadonna, Chief U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics. He's on the phone from New Jersey. Uh, Kathleen, I want to start with you. Hadn't heard from Jay Powell since he popped up on the Today Show a couple weeks ago. We talked to you about that uh, several times. What did you hear from Jay Powell today that was most important? Reassurance. The Fed is doing what it can. The Fed has done more. Uh, for the Fed, it's not necessarily about spending. It's about lending. I think he's trying to, you know, quietly uh, address this concern that maybe the Fed could pick winners and losers with some of these new programs it's put into place. And reassurance that the Fed knows how bad the situation is for the economy right now, how there's going to be no, not even a thought of moving the key rate above zero until it's clear that the economy is launched into recovery. Right. And finally, that uh, he, thinks there's, he thinks there's a chance, if things go well, that we will see a rebound in the second half of the year. I think that's the kind of reassuring fireside chat that people needed to hear. Right. As we said at the top of our broadcast, you know, the Fed to the rescue again. Uh, what we heard, though, the exact words from Fed Chief Jay Powell was an economic rebound that will be robust. Carl Riccadonna, do you agree with him? 
Well, fed to the rescue here, there, and everywhere, we should say, uh, Carol, because it's really unprecedented uh, market action, uh, not just in treasuries and mortgages, but really across the spectrum. The Fed is uh, uh, putting its thumb on the scale in uh, a whole slew of uh, core uh, capital markets. Uh, I think that uh, we could see decent uh, economic growth in the back half of the year, but we will still be in a recovery phase because we're going to see a very sharp decline in economic activity in the current quarter, a double-digit decline, uh, probably the worst going back over the entire history uh, to World War II. And so the deeper we go in Q2, uh, the easier it is to get some not-so-bad numbers uh, in uh, in the third quarter and uh, the fourth quarter, but uh, that, that still will leave us in deeply negative territory for the year as a whole. And so, I don't know, Kathleen, like, what do we need to hear next from from the Fed? I mean, we, you and others, uh, have been hearing pretty robustly from a lot of Fed speakers over the last uh, couple weeks. What do we need to hear next? What else can they tell us to continue this reassurance? Well, at this point, with all the lending programs they've launched, presumably what the good news would be for us to hear is them acknowledging and saying, look, these are working. And I think um, we've already seen evidence that they they have worked. I mean, they actually were able to say they're going to scale back the quantitative easing, the bond purchases by $20 billion in the period they're, they're referring to, um, because, and, and presumably that's because they, they accomplished one thing they were really worried about in mid-February going into March, the Treasury market. It was going crazy. You see more stability, less volatility. So that just that action is reassurance that the Fed thinks that's going well. Uh, it's clear that they're shifting their focus, though, going to buy uh, corporate bonds below investment grade, some of them three levels into junk. Terrific uh, quote from Mark Fittner in one of our Bloomberg stories saying it's not that they're buying uh, they're buying fallen angels. You know, companies brought down to junk status by what's been going on. They're not dastardly devils. Right. I think that's the kind of thing the Fed has to tell us. All right. So while the Fed is out there, you know, action after action, Fed to the rescue, um, we know the government, uh, Congress has passed that, you know, massive $2 trillion program that included about half a trillion dollars for hard-hit industries. As for the airlines, some headlines just crossing the Bloomberg terminal uh, in a phone call uh, described, uh, I guess, according or, or folks familiar talking about a phone call that the airlines, I think, had with the government. U.S. airlines seeking federal aid told it will be another week. Some carriers told of the delay in that call with the Treasury. And what specifically is at issue is the Treasury Department deciding how to distribute about $29 million. So, again, this was a call that uh, it looks like some airlines had with the Treasury Department described to us by people familiar with that phone call. So, you know, I understand the government trying to figure out how to, um, you know, uh, distribute it ultimately. So, Carl, I want to go back to you because you laid out the scenario of what you're expecting in terms of growth or lack thereof, um, going to be some staggering numbers. But do you have some confidence because of some of the massive aid packages coming from the government and probably more to come? and the Fed out there doing everything and anything that it can, that ultimately when we do get a recovery, it will be a pretty dynamic one. I, uh, I, I still uh, retain some uh, reserve about uh, that being a dynamic and robust recovery. I think that there's a real risk that we could limp out of this uh, very sharp contraction 
uh, if we're not successful in containment measures, uh, first of all, if we uh, you know uh, undo the lockdown too soon and we see another spike, and we're talking about climbing up the curve again and hospitals becoming overwhelmed, uh, that is very much within the realm of possibility if the lockdown does not stamp out uh, you know the the risk of a uh, uh, virus uh, uh, spreading again. Uh, so that that's something that could slow us down in the recovery. Also, it's a massive stimulus uh, d- uh, package, uh, but it's right-sized if it's delivered swiftly. If we're not delivering it swiftly, then the problem continues to grow and the price tag continues to increase. And so things like unemployment benefits, uh, we're working through those. The checks are arriving. The rebate checks should be arriving soon. But the longer folks have to wait for those funds, the more the economic pain uh, intensifies. And the best example of that, uh, what was what you just highlighted with the uh, airlines yeah. uh, clamoring for the money uh, mm-hmm. and having to wait for it, but also with small businesses. The small business loan uh, to grant program is stumbling out of the block. There's tremendous uncertainty. Funds are not being distributed. They don't have enough money in the system. Congress is bungling the passage of uh, augmenting those funds. And so if small businesses are sitting around waiting for the checks, they can only wait so long before they finally have to uh, throw their hands in the air uh, and, uh, and give up. And you have the airline sector, Jason, as we know, that they're looking out towards summer and they're anticipating cutting you know, those summer flights up to 90%. They're yeah. expecting consumers are going to be slow to come back. Absolutely. And we're seeing that, uh, you know, in the traffic data Mm -hmm. already. All right. Uh, Really good stuff. Thank you so much to Kathleen Hayes, Global Economics and Policy Editor for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from Pennsylvania. Carl Riccadonna, Chief U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics. He joined us on the phone from New Jersey. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, and as the market becomes more enthusiastic and we start to think about coming back Part of what is going to be at the heart of this is testing Mm -hmm. and treatment, therapeutics, vaccines, the medical side. Let's understand that piece of it. For that, we turn to Brian Scorney, Senior Biotech and Pharma Analyst for Bayer, joining us on the phone from New York City. So, Brian, you look at these pharma companies, the biotech companies, they are all scrambling, to say the least, all efforts uh, on the medical side of this. What do we need to know? What's the latest? Yeah, so certainly I think it's, I think it's all hands on deck. Um, you, know, you can't even count this, uh, at this point how many different companies have announced press releases with programs to develop something um, to, to handle this uh, epidemic that we're seeing. There's a number of things already in development, and there's multiple um, ways that people are thinking about targeting uh, the virus. I think the most promising um, in, in the near term for having an effect is, is trying to uh, – adjust some of the downstream effects of the disease. So, you know, I look at companies like Roche and Regeneron um, with uh, their their drugs that target IL-6, um, really stops one of the biggest, um, uh, most uh, fatal manifestations of the disease, which is this over-response to the immune system. I think those are, are very promising. So a number of companies looking to target the virus itself, stop, stop the viral replication. Um, there's a number of those in clinical development. You know, I, I think those are a little more ambiguous because, um, you know, this is a new virus and we really need to, to, to kind of understand what it is and uh, where it's replicating to well, design something specific for it. Right. Well, that's what I want to ask you, because if we design specifically a vaccine for COVID-19, if, you know, it mutates, does that mean we still don't have a vaccine for, you know, the mutation? I mean, so, or, or if a lot of people have ultimately had COVID-19, we don't know because we haven't done enough testing, Brian, mm-hmm. that do we all have immunity? And so having a vaccine isn't as important as it, as it, as it once was. 
Yeah, so I think, I mean, I think that's a great question. And, you know, unfortunately, I think at this point, it's really too early in the disease to, to really know um, what's going to happen. You ask, you know, we're going to start looking at people to see if they're immune, if they've had um, antibody responding to this and, and their own immune system can recognize it subsequently. Um, you know, we're still in the very early stages. It doesn't seem like people who have immediately been infected are getting reinfected uh, in any large extent. And, and just based on kind of classical immunology, we would expect that you would be protected to some extent for, for some at, at minimum short period of time. But is it something like chickenpox where essentially one exposure gets you lifelong right. immunity? Or is it influenza where, um, you know, see the, the virus changing and, and the immune system really can't handle um, the changes in the virus as it, as it goes season after season? Uh, we really don't know. I mean, it's, it's a much different virus than either of those. So there's reasons to believe uh, it, it can find, wind up falling somewhere in between. But I think it's very early stage for that. And then the vaccine is, you know, it's sort of the same thing is it's going to be something where we can develop a vaccine and there'll be something that gets adjusted every year or is one vaccination going to give lifelong protection i think it's just way too early to really to really know the answer to that yet and brian help us understand you know for those of us trying to get our heads around this more effort on therapeutics vaccines testing like where are you seeing the most action and where are you seeing the most promise even from an investor's perspective and i'm going to ask you where do you think with what you know just to tack on to that where should the efforts be placed at this point is it a vaccine or is it dealing with those who come down with with uh the ailment well, I think the most near-term thing that we're going to be able to handle is, is people who come down with the a- actual ailment, right? And, and when you think of what happens to these patients, you know, they get pneumonia, they have immunological responses um, that, you know, send them in, in very frequent cases uh, in, into fatal conditions. There's ways to intervene with the, the downstream effects of what the virus are causing, and, and we know a lot of those. And like I said, Roche's Actemra is one way uh, people are exploring it, right? And then you know, the next stage is to actually target the virus itself. I think we're a little too early for that, but that'll be something um, that, that, that we'll be able to move relatively rapid um, on. A vaccine, I think, is unfortunately a, a little bit more of a long-term issue, and again, because you think about what, what you need to do for a vaccine. For a therapeutic, you're willing to take some risk because the patient actually has the, the right. disease itself. Um, with a vaccine, I mean, you're talking about to really ha- maximize your, your efficacy here, you want to inoculate virtually the whole world, right? So the safety profile has to be really, really very clean. So you really don't want to move too fast with a vaccine. You right. move very fast with a therapeutic. And I'll just remind everybody, Jason, some reporting earlier by Bloomberg News just this week, you know, that a potential vaccine is still more than a year away. So despite, you know, some of what we hear in the optimism, you know, creating a vaccine is not something that we can expect anytime soon. Yeah, no, it seems like testing and therapeutics are the things that are going to be on the near term horizon. Great context. We really appreciate yeah. it. Brian Scorney, Senior Biotech and pharma analyst for Baird. He joined us on the phone in New York. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. 
It is time for the drive to the close. We're just minutes away from wrapping up U.S. trading in this holiday-shortened uh, week. Back with us is Wayne Wicker, Chief Investment Officer at Vantage Point Investment Advisors, $29 billion in assets under management. Wayne joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Man, the markets, depending on the day, depending on the week, were either up a lot or down a lot. Wayne, how do you approach this type of market environment? Boy, Carol, this is as volatile a period of time I've had in my 36-year career. And uh, I think that it's reflective of the fact that uh, because of the health crisis that's driven this uh, uh, problem, we just don't have a lot of information uh, uh, from day to day. Uh, And so, you know, I think the best uh, approach to take in a period like this is to have a very uh, long-term orientation and anchor to – uh, a horizon that's probably two or three years out because you get, just can't manage this day by day the way the volatility is today. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, my favorite quote of the week so far, maybe you're going to win the uh, the rodeo here, Wayne, was from a guest uh, <laughs> around this time yesterday who said, treat your 401k like you treat your face. Don't touch it. Just like <laughs> leave it alone and just kind of ride this out. And, and I do wonder whether enough people are going to follow that advice. And, and I guess I would ask you, is that the right advice at this point? Well, I think that uh – Folks that have a 401k plan, which is all of us, uh, hopefully, um, are in the best position to ride out uh, the volatility that we have here. And the reason I say that is uh, because of the systematic way that we continue to deposit money every couple of weeks. So you're going to average in on this volatility over a long period of time because nobody's going to know where the bottom is or if its bottom's already in. But if you continue to participate uh, uh, week by week, over a two- or three- or four-year period of time, I think you'll be well-rewarded. i got to say, there's part of me I was reading something in about the wealthy who are, is it selling off assets or, or real estate? I think it was on the Bloomberg. And then using that to buy stocks and buy into the market right now because, you know, names have taken such a beating. Not everybody has that luxury. Most people do not. Um, but I do wonder, Wayne, if we do look back at this time and say, boy, it was a great uh, you know, buying opportunity. I feel like any time things are beaten up disproportionately to what ultimately will be the longer-term impact, it is a great buying opportunity. Yeah, Carol, I think that that'll be true if you have uh, the look back uh, probably two or three years from now. Two or three um, years, wow. Who, That's a long who, time. Who, well, the reason I say that is because uh, over the next few months, uh, you know, we could experience as quickly as we've come up, and you mentioned it earlier, it's, you know, uh, we've had a 25% gain in the last 12 trading days. Um, we can get other news that the market could trade on that can take us back down uh, right. uh, by 10%, 15%. So I think in the short run, uh, you, you know, it's going to be a little bit more uh, challenging for individuals to identify names. But clearly, over more than a 12-month time horizon, I think you're right. This is going to be a period of time where, uh, at a minimum, you've been able to upgrade your portfolio in terms of the quality of the companies that you want at prices that are mo- more attractive than they were just 60 days ago. So, Wayne, having, uh, as you said, uh, seen some volatility over your time, seen some crises, I do wonder, and, and this has been top of mind for Carol and myself, I think, especially today, having heard from Jay Powell earlier, having seen again the power of the Treasury Secretary in both sort of coming up with a lot of the fiscal side solutions and then executing them, what do you make of the fiscal and the monetary response from the U.S. government so far? So if we compare this to the 0809 time period, uh, the response by the Fed 
has been unbelievable. I mean, I think they have come in. They've been rapid uh, uh, in terms of their reaction. Uh, Jay Powell, I think, has done a, a really uh, good job of, you know, trying to uh, ensure what he's supposed to be doing, which is maintaining the financial stability of, of the economy. And so uh, in, in light of the fact that this is driven not by the same types of factors as 0809, where we thought, you know, gosh, is the financial industry going to be around? This yeah. is a, a more open-ended problem with the uh, uh, COVID-19 issue. And so they can't help uh, that uh, catalyst, but what they can do is uh, provide a significant bridge uh, to help get us to the other side of uh, the unknown duration that we are currently experiencing. And the fiscal side, how do you feel about Mnuchin & Co.? I think they've done an absolutely great job. Uh, they have identified a lot of places w which are going to be, uh, I think, very weak coming out of this uh, two- or three-month period of time, and they've tried to uh, come in to provide a backstop that in the short run I think is going to be uh, critical uh, for retaining some investor confidence. Now, I think later on, uh, at some point, we're going to have to figure out how we're repaying all this debt that's uh, going on. But uh, I think in the short run, uh, investors are really enthused about uh, what has been going on. I think later on, the uh, uh, reality of the economics that uh, uh, the Fed is trying to uh, solve for uh, will come back. So uh, it sounds like you're not doing any buying for your clients. And correct me if I'm wrong. Um, is that the case? Well, we're always in the market. And uh, so, so we tend to run fairly fully invested portfolios. We have a slight cash buffer. Yeah. But, uh, so what but are we, you buying? So what are you buying right now, Wayne? Well, we have 31 different uh, uh, funds, so uh, you can pick your flavor. But I, I think that in general, the tilts in the portfolios are still more growth-oriented hmm. uh, rather than value-oriented. Uh, yield is not uh, actually uh, being rewarded in this environment, nor is low vol uh, types of strategies. Uh, when growth goes uh, to negative uh, numbers like we have today, investors are going to tilt towards those companies that have the best growth prospects. And so that has uh, translated into our portfolios to having more of a growth orientation at the present time. All right. Well, we wish you only the best, Wayne, and Take hopefully, uh, as they say, next time in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. <laughs> hopefully we'll be seeing right. you then. In the meantime... <laughs> stay well, stay healthy. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.